Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Merrow. This season is sponsored by Webs. Webs, America's yarn store, is your source for everything you need for your next weaving project. Webs carries a wide selection of yarns, looms, tools, and accessories, and you can save up to 25% every day with the Webs discount. Visit yarn.com for more info. I spoke with Dr. Susan K. Williams of the Royal School of Needlework. The RSN will celebrate its 150th anniversary in 2022, but the school is still creating new offerings for students both at its London campus and around the world. So thanks so much for being with me. I'm delighted to be here. So you are the, is it correct that you're the director of the, or the executive director of the Royal School of Needlework? chief executive of the Royal School of Needlework. What does it mean to be a royal school? Well, it, it has many connotations and those have changed over the years. So we were originally founded in 1872 and one of the first people to get involved with us was Princess Helena who was Queen Victoria's third daughter. And she was very active and she was our president at the time. And then she persuaded her mother to become our patron. And as a result of that, in 1875, we were allowed to call ourselves the Royal School of Art Needlework, as we were then. So that was that was a great honour indeed. And Princess Helena was a very strong working princess. She really, you know, she was our advocate, she was our fundraiser, she was our champion. She was very, very busy indeed. She had many causes that she worked with, but when she died, there were just really two that it came down to, ourselves and a nursing association, which she had also helped found. These were the ones that were the most important to her and that she gave an enormous amount of time to. Now, time passes, and we continued to have royal patronage from king and queen at times through to Queen Elizabeth II. So our longest-serving monarch was better known to us as the Queen Mother, but she started as our president in 1923 and continued all the way, becoming patron later on, but continued all the way to 2002 when she died. So, you know, very long-term supporter. And she was a very active and interested supporter. So, yes, she she was with us a very long time. Then we were very fortunate that the Queen personally became our patron. That was rare because she did not take on many from her her mother. And then in 2017, she passed us on to the Duchess of Cornwall, who is our current patron. And that's great because she's able to be a bit more active. So she last came to see us in 2019, when we had created a a portrait of her in blackwork embroidery. And if any of your listeners are interested, they can actually go and find this on the RSN YouTube channel where they can see a time-lapse video 
of the making of her face in blackwork embroidery. And she herself, we, we sent this information to her before she came to see us. And um, she actually clearly had watched it several times because she came straight in on that occasion and said to the, the stitcher, Rachel, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> so that, uh, you know, clearly she had been there. So nowadays, royal patronage is support, without doubt, and, and encouragement. Um, it's not perhaps quite so active as it used to be in, um, back in Princess Helena's day. But we are very grateful uh, for the support that we get. And, and it helps us to uh, reach out to a, a wider variety of people. And uh, when I was looking into the history of the Royal School of Needlework, I came across the name of Queen Victoria. But I also came across William Morris, who I think of as, as having such a appeal to sort of everyday life and, you know, wanting to make design accessible to everyone. <laughs> so that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. And, I, and I'm not my I'm not sure if I have the William Morris part correct, but. William, William Morris is an interesting character, without doubt. I'm not sure he was really about making design accessible to everybody. I think you still have to have quite a good size of purse to be able to, to <laughs> purchase things from him and his company. Uh, however, he was also a savvy businessman. And we actually approached him. Through one of our founding ladies, Madeline Wyndham, who herself had an artistic career, she actually approached him about doing some designs for the school, which the school would buy and then translate into embroidery. Now, he'd already espoused embroidery through people like his daughter, May, and his sister-in-law, Bessie Burden. So he was well aware of embroidery and its role and potential value. But as a, as a savvy businessman, one of the things that we offered was that we were, going to, we were going to go to the Philadelphia Exhibition in 1876, and we were there going to take work by people like himself, Walter Crane, Selwyn Image, and he realised that this was a comparatively cheap way for him to get exposure in America. And so he, he agreed to us having some designs from him. And we took, uh, we took some designs, worked in embroidery to Philadelphia. And then he followed that up himself with other connections with America. So it was very, uh, very positive for him to be able to have that connection and that early route into America. We predominantly thereafter went on separate routes, except for some quite significant pieces, one of which is the embroidery of Pomona, where the figure of Pomona is by Edward Byrne-Jones and the foliage is by William Morris. It is different from the woven version, which certainly in this country I think people are more familiar with, but the embroidered version was made by the RSN, and that was a very significant piece. That actually also came back to America. It came to Chicago for the 1893 World Fair. So, so yes, we did have a connection with William Morris. Of all the arts and crafts people, possibly him less so than others, uh, we have more work in the, in the archive by Walter Crane, Selwyn Image, and Byrne Jones than we do of, um, of William Morris. 
but certainly there was a connection. That is such an interesting bit of context. You know, his name certainly was very well marketed even to this day. But there was something you mentioned about creating pieces. So there's an element of the Royal School of Needlework that's obviously a school, but there's also an element that's more of an atelier studio. That, that is the case. And in fact, when we started, although we, we put our name as being school, the teaching at the beginning was very, was very slender. You had nine days of tuition, after which you were tested. And then if you were found, well, really, in a way, they'd already tested you. They would be testing you through your nine days. If you were, were looking like you were never going to be good enough, you would be allowed to go after about three days. And, um, you know, thank you very much for coming. You can even have your fee back. But no, you're not going to be suitable. But if you were found with potential after nine days, then you would be admitted into the workroom. But it was still treated as a sort of training workroom. And so people came through and then would be trained up in different techniques because the whole point of why we were started, um, there were two aspects to it. One was that needlework had really become a kind of canvas work known as Berlin woolwork. So this is work on a canvas. Basically, you can do it in one stitch. The designs were quite bold. And the flowers that were featured, what I would call very blousy flowers, they looked like one breath of wind and all the petals would fall off them. So they were really quite open. And sometimes beadwork was included. Sometimes a little bit of plush work was included. But by and large, this was work that was for the domestic environment and for practical things, everything from bell pulls and stool covers, chair seat covers, those kind of things. But as a result of this, because it was, it was a huge craze, it came all the way over from Germany to Britain and then, and then came over to the States. And um, a shop in London advertised that it had more than 16 thousand patterns for Berlin wool work. So that's what I mean about, yes, it was a, a real craze. So when we were founded, Lady Welby um, and the other founding ladies wanted to re-establish all the significant techniques of embroidery, like cruel work and black work and silk shading and gold work, etc. So uh, that was the, the, the basic principle, to re-establish embroidery as an art form, and ideally to have it seen alongside fine art. And so that was why art, uh, art needlework was established, because these were large pieces, and the RSN would work on them collectively. The other reason for the, the founding of the RSN was to offer suitable employment to women, educated women, who would otherwise have been destitute. And the reason for this was in the latter part of the 19th century, there's a growing number of families where perhaps a, a husband died or a, a father died, and they left the women of the household unprovided for. And so it, even our very first students were three sisters. And it said in the register that their father had been um, a surveyor of reputation who had died unexpectedly in Rome. 
leaving a widow and four daughters wholly unprovided for. And so if they hadn't got family to fall back on, then they had to find a way of making their own living. And so by that stage, things like department stores had started. But we are talking about a class of ladies that perhaps a department store was not quite right for them. So this was a way of them making their own money. At the time, the the Royal School of Needlework was not the only such option. We, in, in 1875, there were speeches about the when we moved to our new premises in Exhibition Road. And we still have those speeches. And they were printed by the Ladies Printing Press, another that had been set up for distressed gentlewomen. So the same principles of why it was set up. Um, I do not think the Ladies Printing Press still exists today, unlike the RSN. But, uh, but yeah, we were not the only organisation doing that because it was, it was meeting a need at that time. So those were the founding principles of the RSN. And then, as I say, um, we were particularly interested in working on pieces that were larger, um, so not small domestic pieces you can work in the hand. And so we would do pieces that might be six feet high. And so to do those in any kind of, of reasonable time frame, you needed a group of people working on it. Uh, and so the whole principle of the way that the RSN taught was you were taught collectively so that six people at any one time, even more, might work on a piece overall. But at the end, it would look like the work of one person. And that is still our caveat today. That's still what we say today, that we can have a group of people working on a project, but at the end, it will look like the work of one person. So the education at the Royal School of Needlework today is definitely more than nine days. What kind of educational options do you offer? It certainly is more than nine days, yes. So altogether, we have really four main programs. So starting with the large two, um, the BA Honours Degree in Hand Embroidery. And we are the only place in the UK where you can take a full three-year degree just in hand embroidery. And our students study the techniques of hand embroidery the same as in our other classes. But the students are challenged to take it off in lots of different directions. And, you know, last year we had 14 graduates and the work of each one was completely different. Um, in the way that they had developed those ideas and where they had taken it. So that is is really exciting. So they do hand embroidery uh, one day a week of taught work, and they do art and design for one day a week. They do contextual studies, and then they also have application of, of the techniques into applied areas of work. And obviously, there's more teaching in year one and more of their own work by the time they get to year three. So that's a really good course. And we're so proud of the students who come from that course. They, they have become prize winners in many things and, and featured in books and journals in America, in the UK and elsewhere. So that's fantastic. And then the other three-year course is Future Tutors, which is what it says in its title. These are the people who are going to go on to be able to teach for us. So they are taught all the techniques uh, and they have to achieve them to a very high standard. 
They have to achieve a, at least a merit, if not a distinction, to be able to go on and then teach for us. And they will do everything because it's, it's really about the technicality. So the pieces that they're working are perhaps more recognisable, two-dimensional mostly, and uh, standard pieces that can then be mounted. But the brief might change year to year about what they're actually working on. And in many cases, they have the opportunity to add in their own creativity. Um, so it's not a set design in any way. But for example, black work is usually about uh, creating a person because you really then have to look at the shades and shadows on a face to think about how you're going to communicate that in the stitch. It's about paying that attention so that you cover every aspect of a technique. So when subsequently you move on to teaching it, you, you kind of you have all the answers up your sleeve, and and that's what's really important uh, with the Future Tutor Program. So again, that's three years, and uh, students work through all of the techniques. They also get opportunities to have some contextual uh, lectures, and they get chances to look at the collection and learn from past pieces of embroidery. Yes, so tomorrow, in fact, I'm actually spending time with the future tutors and we're looking at pieces in the collection so they can see how things have been made, different types of stitches and so on. So those are kind of the professional classes, if you like. And then we have um, the certificate and diploma in technical hand embroidery. And that's a part-time class. And people take that from now from all over the world because we offer that not just in the UK, but we offer it online. And so we worked over summer of 2020 to work out how best to offer it because it has high technical standards and we really wanted to make sure that we could communicate this online. So we, we split up the teaching, um, particularly of the first mod module, we split that up so there's more opportunity for people to get acclimatised to working in the RSN way. But, but that's been going really well. And we have been teaching people from, well, at the moment, we've got people from all over America and Canada, across Europe, uh, over to Australia and New Zealand, and a recent recruit from Chile. So we really are kind of covering, covering the globe here uh, with people who have signed up for that. And then finally, we have our short courses. So short courses are open to anyone, uh, and they will vary in the length of time. So it might be anything from two and a half to three hours, or it could be a series of classes. We, last year, we launched something called Technical Tuesdays, which are um, to us Tuesday evening to America, it would be kind of Tuesday afternoon. And it is a two hour class um, each week. And you do three terms of 10 weeks and you go through a technique and you really learn about different stitches of this technique. So you'll learn 30 stitches across the year, as well as some of the history of it. And again, looking at pieces in the collection in more detail. So we've currently got black work and um, Jacobean cruel work uh, running for that. And then we'll be launching another one next September. We'll launch a, th a third one. So and that just, again, plays to our strengths of having teachers all taught to the same level and being able to, to have that technical expertise. So we bring that together. 
But we have lots of fun classes. We've got we've got some Christmas brooches coming up, which are just little small brooches you can make. And each one is just a bit of fun, you know. And you can imagine you could keep these year after year and bring them out again every year to wear them. And it would just remind you of taking a class, you know. So they're uh, a stocking and a, and a snowman and a, a fairy, you know, things like that. So great fun pieces. So for us, hand embroidery, particularly for the short courses, isn't, it's not about being over serious. It's about having fun and um, enjoying the stitch. And then next summer, we will be having our international summer school. Uh, we had our first one online uh, this last summer, very successful. And next year, it will, of course, be our anniversary summer school. So we're, we're thinking of special things for that. 150 years. That's quite a distinction to make it that long. How many techniques overall does the World School have in your repertoire? It, it's, a, it's a large number, but some of them are more complicated. And so they don't just have kind of one level to them. So Jacobean cruel work, you have a vast array of stitches, but it's all kind of around one level. So silk shading actually works at three different levels. You start with a botanical, so a flower, and you have to look at the shape and the shades and the shadows that are incorporated within that. So we actually encourage students to, to paint it out first, even if they're not sort of an expertise watercolour painter. It just gives you an idea of what you're looking at. And then you work that into stitch. And then at the second level, you do a, an animal or a bird. And here, it's all about going with the direction of the fur or the feathers. So, you know, if you've got a bird that's got lots of layers of feather, how do you differentiate from one to the next? And if you've got um, an animal looking at, you know, is there a sweet spot where actually there's no fur at all, like a cat? When a cat sits down, there's a little spot and the fur is all going in every other direction. And so you've got a bald bit in the middle. And you kind of really have to look at the animal that you're going to be featuring and uh, go with a great deal of detail. And then it's also about the mixing of the colours that are so important and why occasionally you almost need a shock colour because you think, hang on, that actual colour isn't this muted brown I think I'm working with. There's a dash of pink there. And, and you put a little stitch of pink and it just brings the whole thing alive. So that's, that's level two with silk shading. And then level three is known as tapestry silk shading. And this is for figures. It's for people. And it's named after woven tapestry. Because if you go to a museum or in this country, a stately home, and you see tapestries hanging up, you will see that it looks like the figure has been worked with the thread all going top to bottom in straight line. That is actually incorrect because it's worked through 90 degrees. And so the way it was worked is horizontally with layer upon layer of thread. But with embroidery, you have a base fabric. So you've got that substance to work with. So then for the figure, you are stitching in straight lines top to bottom. And that might be through the face and through all of the costume that they are wearing. And particularly, we look for figures that have got 
drape and fold to their garments, because that just adds to the complexity that we challenge our students to achieve. Uh, and so those are three different layers. And so in a way, yes, that's all silk shading, but you have to master all three. Gold work, the same. There are at least kind of three levels of, of gold work, basic, advanced, and then what's known as coronation gold work, which is the work, uh, the style of work that we would use and did use back in 1953 and 1937 and, uh, and 1902 when we made the coronation robes for uh, the king and queen. So again, many of these techniques do have um, layers of complexity to them uh, that you need to build up over time. Does the Royal School teach beginning classes? Is that something oh, that in person or online? Yes. Um, so the short courses, many, many of the short courses are introductions to or open to all levels. So, yes, we, we, we really want to take people and assume no prior level of stitching, because even if you're proficient in, let's say, at needlepoint, if you want to do a completely different technique like silk shading or like black work, you might be starting as a beginner. So we, we offer many courses to beginners. Uh, it's just a case of having a look at our list online. It will say there if it's for a beginner or a more advanced stitcher. But many of them are our starter classes because we're all about encouraging more people to take up hand embroidery. And for these short classes or, or classes where people are enrolled from all over the world, how do you give feedback? And does that also have the goal of the school of having a, a particularly high standard and uniformity? We will teach to show you how to achieve that high standard and uniformity. But each person is doing it themselves. And certainly, if you are doing a short course, then it's fine if you, you know, feel, oh, I can't quite match the stitch length of the others and I, I can't quite get it as tiny or as neat. That's fine. No one's going to criticize. It's absolutely fine. But the teacher will give you clues and tips and hints as to how you could make it better. So, for example, how we, well, we call it casting on as if it was knitting, but how you start. You know, we do it in such a way that you don't have knots on the back of your fabric. And, you know, we like to work in such a way that the back will look as neat as the front. And some people will say, heavens, I could never achieve that. But we will show you how, you know. So, but as I say, for the leisure classes, it's really not important. Obviously, for the assessed classes, it is more important. But again, we guide you through. And the way that we can see your work is you can take a picture of your work and you can send it to the tutor who can then enlarge it on their device. And hey, presto, they can see everything. <laughs> so they can really give you guidance on that because they can see stitch length, stitch direction. They can see, you know, one of the things that's important is that you, if you've marked a design on your fabric, you need to stitch to the outside of that area so that you hide the line and they'll be able to see, are you doing that? So they know all the points that are going to be assessed and they can give guidance to the student to say, oh, yes, you've really got it here, but that bit isn't working quite so well. And then uh, again, for the certificate and diploma course, we might well say to students, you know, if you took that out, we think you could do a lot better next time. 
And in fact, usually by that point, the t- the student themselves knows that they could do better. And when I mean the, the certificate students, we also teach in person at Hampton Court. They have been back for months, and so they. Uh, they go past my door on the way to the bathroom. And I used to have a Jacobean Cruel Work screen, sort of fire screen, on top of my filing cabinet. And people used to pop in, not realising I was there, because they'd be attracted by it as they came on the walk back from the bathroom and they'd see it. And they'd come in, they'd walk right up to it, and I could hear them go, ooh, ooh. Mm. And then and I would and then they'd turn around and they'd get a bit of a shock to see me sitting there. <laughs> but I would say to them, Would you like to decipher your ums and ahs? And they would say, Um, well, I've just looked at this and I've realized how neat and beautiful this is. And I've just been thinking about the piece I've been working on. And mm, mine isn't possibly quite as neat and beautiful, but now I've seen this. I think I can do better. So I'm actually going to go out and just take out what I've been working on and have another go because I think I'll be better next time. And um, and I th- always thought that was a positive. You know, I don't see that as a negative mm-hmm. at all. So you mentioned your collection. How many pieces are in the collection? And is it a sort of a museum or is it more of a teaching collection? Um, it's a bit of both. Um, and how many pieces? That is an extremely good question, which I can't actually answer. Uh, And the reason for that is that sometimes we have an inventory. It's not a very thorough inventory. And sometimes one number will have nine pieces or even on one occasion, 37 pieces that are all (laughs) under that one number. And then we we also have quite quite a lot of pieces that are not numbered at all. They've just been kind of swept up and kept. Uh, and, and no one considered actually giving them a, a number from the collection. Uh, so the collection is in kind of three parts. We have a, a handling collection, and that is uh, what it sounds like. This is pieces that really, frankly, are falling apart. No standard museum would keep them any longer, but we keep them because it means that students can actually look how was the piece made? What story can it tell me? What is there uh, in here about how the stitches were made? How can I look at that? So that's really useful to them. And in fact, I've just accessioned a new piece into the handling collection. And I was talking to the future tutors about it yesterday, because at first glance, it's a, a girl's dress and it's got it's silk underneath and it's got a net overlayer with some embroidery on it. And you might think, oh, end of story. And then you start literally, as it were, unpacking it and realise, no, the net is in three different sections. And these have been made in different ways and they are from different types of net. So the one in the middle is handmade net uh, with Carrick Macross style motifs stitched on. The top and bottom ones are machine made net with stitching directly onto the net, probably by a machine. And then at the bottom of this dress, on the, on the underlayer, someone had stitched on an extra bit of fabric. It's a kind of machine knitted fabric, and it has been appallingly stitched on <laughs> by somebody <laughs> who really 
Skill was not their middle name at all. So it's just lit. You can, the, the stitches are huge and, and completely out of proportion, um, but just stitching it on. And it's not even stitched on straight or anything like this. And then you look at this, the top layer where the, where the sleeves are, and you suddenly realize that the net layer, the shoulders are much broader. And then when you look at the original dress, the shoulders were much narrower. Clearly what has happened here is that somebody has tried to make this dress bigger for a girl that has grown up. <laughs> so still using the um, the core uh, fabric, it was expensive, can't throw it away. Oh, but look, we'll cobble it together with a bit of this and a bit of this. Oh, it'll be perfect. It'll look lovely. You're fine. <laughs> um, so you know, great to go into the handling collection as a teaching piece as for people to look at. Then we have our teaching collections. And those are in, I would say, back in, in terms of your previous question, how many techniques? We probably think of as eight as the core techniques, uh, where we have uh, black work and white work and silk shading, gold work, etc., canvas stitches, uh, and so on. And we have boxes from pieces in the collection that represent each of those techniques some representing pieces that you would do as starter pieces and some a bit more advanced. But they're useful to bring out for when when any of the students starts off, you know, when the degree team, for example, when they start teaching black work, they bring out that box and then people see what black work was about. And particularly in terms of black work, they see what it used to be like, which is between the Tudor times and the 1950s, it was always an infill. So you'd do an outline shape and then infill. But we have now made it pictorial. So we've taken the same types of stitches, but worked them in a completely different way. So that's that's useful for the students to see. And then the third batch is the, the main collection. And those are pieces, um, well, they're very eclectic. We're a charity, a non-profit. So we've never had the money to buy our own pieces for the collection. What we have has been given. So some of it is really wonderful and some of it possibly not so wonderful. But we, we keep it all because our range is probably broader than many other institutions that only take the best. And we are actually trying to raise funds to digitise the collection so more people can get to see it. but. Um, it's very varied. We have lots of white work, so the underlayers that people used to wear, plus collars, christening robes for babies, shirts for ladies, you know, blouses when they used to have linen underlayers, lots of things like that. We have a clutch of 18th century gentlemen's waistcoats. Uh, we have some 17th century pieces, um, including um, a mirror frame, which is absolutely fabulous. Then we have quite a bit of gold work linked to church work as part of the collection. We have some royal pieces, some of which were made by members of the royal family, some of which were made for members of the royal family by the RSN. And for whatever reason, a piece has, has returned to us. And we have examples of, of the major techniques as well. So that, as I say, there's always something to look at for each of the techniques that we teach. You mentioned trying to digitize the collection. You've, in addition to greatly expanding your online education, you are in the process of a, another really ambitious digital project. 
Can you tell me about the Stitch Bank? Yes, the RSN Stitch Bank was launched last month and this has been, well, it's been some time in the making. We wanted to do it for a while, but it is in order to potentially conserve and preserve every stitch in the world. So, you know, we have big ambitions. We don't, we, we may be a small organisation, but we don't have small ambitions. And so we have started by launching the first 150 stitches. There are many, many more, and more will be coming as we go through the uh, next batch will come up and so on. So we keep adding them. And the exciting thing is, that hopefully it will give people ideas about new stitches that they can try. Well, new to them. Uh, many of these are not new at all. And what will be really exciting is potentially to bring in stitches from past history. So last week I was talking to a lady um, who's found a medieval book which has stitches on it. And she has been unpacking what these stitches are. So we're going to get together so that we can add those onto the stitch bank, which will be fantastic. And then we want to work with different countries to bring in their stitches as well. Now, there are some stitches like chain stitch, which has been all the way around the world and everybody has used it. And there are other stitches that may only be used in even pockets within certain cultures or certain countries. And we want to feature those as well. So we will continue adding to the stitches. And to help, because we're a non-profit to help us fund this, we've been offering people the opportunity to adopt a stitch uh, and they can sign up to adopt it and send us the funding. And then when the stitch goes live, their name will be associated with the stitch, which I think is, is good fun. And again, it's, it's all back to our mission of keeping the art of hand embroidery alive because stitches are, are quite ephemeral. And particularly, if you think about the vulnerability of a textile, that can go very quickly. Uh, and people then think, oh, well, we can't keep this. It's, it's all destroyed and throw it away, not realizing that actually they've lost some knowledge of the stitches that are on there. And so this is why we want to preserve them all. So it's, it's being put together for stitchers, for students, but also for curators and historians who we hope will find it useful. I think about textiles as objects, as material culture, but there's an element of stitching that's almost kind of like damp in that once you've completed the stitch, all you have left is the item, but there was a, there was a motion involved. Absolutely. There's that whole process. And then you get people who think, oh, you know, and I have to say the favorite one for this so far is French knot. It's, oh, I never remember where to start for a French knot or, you know, which way my needle goes inside out. You know, and now, you can go to the RSN Stitch Bank and you can click on French Knot and it will come up. And doesn't matter how you learn, because we have got it with a video, we have got it with a step-by-step -step guide, and we've got it written out. So whichever form of learning works best for you, you can see the French Knot being made and you can watch it as many times as you like and think, right, now I've got it. And, and then you can have a go. And, and so you can even gather stitches together for a project so and put those into a file for yourself saying, right, I'm going to do a new project with these 10 stitches that I've never used before. And you can have your own little folder uh, within it to be able to, to keep those together. So yes, we hope it's going to be a really, really valuable resource. I was so excited last Saturday 
in a place called the Midlands Arts Centre, which is sort of right in the Midland of Britain. They were having an event and they let us know that they were actually going to be promoting the RSN Stitch Bank um, because the people were going to go there and have an open opportunity to stitch. And I thought that was terrific. And that's exactly what we want it for. You you go and you reference it uh, and then use it and it will be great. And we've even had some some support from groups in America and Canada who have supported it uh, as an entity. And then some of them have done a project based on their stitch, uh, which has been quite nice. I've taken some looks through it. I will have to go back and look at the French knot, which like so many people, I find the very simple French knot to be very challenging. Getting the tension just right is the big trouble. (laughs) You have studied there, is that right? Uh, No, I didn't study there. Yeah, I'm the chief executive, but my own research is in the area of colour in textiles. So that that's the work that I do when I have any spare time, which it has to be said of, in recent time, I've had no spare time because um, I have been writing a book on the history of the RSN over the last 150 years, which will be published next year. And so that has taken every moment of my spare time uh, between between lockdowns and everything. But uh, no, I have to say, uh, it is a fascinating history. And, you know, how close we have got to the brink on several occasions, and then been saved at the last minute by one thing or another. And again, with changing fashions, whilst we were never about embroidering for fashion per se, we were much more about embroidery for interiors. That very much has gone in and out of fashion. So, you know, we've done a whole myriad of things, but we have, you know, everything from airmen's wings to royal wedding dresses and arts and crafts panels to go alongside fine art in museums through to embroidered slippers. You know, so it's really a very varied range of what we do and have done. And we do lots of conservation. So there is a thing called a camper van. Yeah, I don't know if that translates into America, but it's, it's, it's much, much, much tinier than a Winnebago. I, I can tell you that. But inside the camper van, we had one recently where all the seat covers were brought to us because this was a 50-year-old camper van, which was still pristine, apart from the fact a moth had got into the seat covers. And we actually restored the seat covers so that when the owner got them back, he couldn't tell where the moth had been biting, you know, and because it looked so much like it was completely rebuilt. So, yes, we, it, you know, the work that we do is very varied. You know, it can be on samplers, it can be on uniforms, it can be on military pieces, it can be on church pieces, and um, you know, we just rise to it and bring in the team that's necessary for, for each individual project. You mentioned that you're that you're not into fashion, but on the other hand, there's a fashion right now for needlework as self-expression. And so when I look at your website, I see a lot of people who are creating things like selfies that they've stitched or sassy cross stitch. And so I was kind of interested in the parallel between the collective stitching experience and using stitching as a as a mechanism for expressing yourself. Yes, absolutely. The selfie project is fascinating. That's a project that we initiated for schools. And it came about because a few years ago on our degree programme, we gave a handkerchief to first year degree students and said, 
do a stitched portrait of yourself and something about where you're from. Uh, and one of them did herself, but she instead of where she was from, she did where she was, which was Hampton Court. And it was an absolutely great portrait. You know, she held it up in front of her face and, you know, it was it was almost a case of going, that's Beth. Whether she takes it down, it's exactly the same. And so there was that. And there were a couple of others that I came across that I found. And I just thought, you know, certainly in this country, young people today seem to be attached to their cell phones. You know, they're, they're always in their hand. They're always twiddling with the buttons. Wouldn't it be great to give them something that's an opportunity for expression that is calmer, quieter, less demanding and certainly less critical than having their phone in their hand all the time. So we came up with this um, Stitch a Selfie project and we we sent out to many of the uh, schools that applied a kit of materials, which was sponsored by one of our livery companies. and. This went with hoops and bags and even sieves because we had the fun of you can stitch a portrait on a sieve, uh, yeah, as in a kitchen sieve that you would sieve your pasta in. And so we said, you know, all of these things and materials, and we just gave them ideas and inspiration, but we left it with them to see what they wanted to do. Uh, and that brought back quite a lot of interesting things. So they could have blue hair in the portrait. They could, ha you know, make it as creative and as fun as they wanted. The idea was simply to put down their their iPhone or their their cell phone and pick up a needle and thread, and and that has really burgeoned. It's really spread, and we get wonderful stories back from teachers telling us that. Well, my favourite is that one teacher told us, "My co-teachers are jealous because they walk past my class, and it's so quiet, and everybody's getting on with their stitching." Because as we know at the RSN, if you're really focused on your stitching, it's very therapeutic because that's where your focus is and other parts of mind and body can heal. So it's really, really good. And they don't notice they're being quiet. They're just getting on with and really enjoying what they're getting on with. And since then, we've expanded it so that instead of a portrait, uh, you can perhaps do a mantra. So perhaps a word or a phrase that makes you feel good and you can stitch that and then you can keep that with you. So if you're having a bad day, you just get that out and have a little look at it and it makes you feel better. And we think that's a very positive way um, for students to be able to work. And you know, it doesn't just have to be students. It can be anybody can stitch that and have their own little mantra. But it is this act of stitch. And as I say, the RSN has known for a very long time, even back to the First World War, that stitching was therapeutic, and that it allows other parts of you to heal while you are stitching, and or to calm down, or just to be to be more relaxed. And that is really good. And so, with our schools project, people, you know, at one end they're working with people who find education challenging, and at the other end they're working with those who are academically gifted. Both of them need a bit of relaxation at a time. Uh, and so they work with them and it, it's really proved proved its worth. So we're expanding that further. And as I say, with, a, with all the way through to the degree program, when they are working on projects that are so varied and just so, so vibrant, really very, each one very different. And, and that's a great way of taking it forward. 
it reminds me of something I heard about occupational therapy and how occupational therapy was was very closely tied to the teaching of weaving. So this handwork connection with with a very therapeutic and and healing element. Yes, I, I think across across the stitch arts or the, the the fiber arts, it does have that movement, and it's the the therapeutic. I think is also part of the repetition. You know, with with weaving, it's a shuttle and pull back and so on. With stitch, it is the repeated entering of the needle through the fabric. Just almost becomes a meditation in many ways. And so you, you kind of get into the groove of it. And as I say, it calms you down, it quietens you down without realizing it. And, and that's its great asset. One of our teachers also reminded me that when you think about your fingers as being digits, that stitching and handwork is in some ways the original digital occupation. <laughs> Very much so. Yes, I would agree with that. So how can people learn more about the Royal School of Needlework and all the ways that we can take part? Well, I think we would direct you first to our website, which is royal-needlework.org.uk. And go on there and you will find out uh, much more, a bit more of our history, all about the current classes and courses. And we're constantly putting up uh, new classes and courses and uh, also about the, the larger projects as well. And then for the uh, Stitch Bank, it's rsnstitchbank.org. And that will take you straight there. uh, And you can look up as many stitches as you like. Well, thank you so much. This has me all excited to get out my own needle and thread and hoop. Marvellous. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.